enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Hello, and welcome to the Mobcast. In this episode, you'll hear the story of a gang of lovable scamps as well as the story of their kind-hearted and courageous leader. I'm just kidding. He was a total monster. Let's get started. In New York City, during the decades prior to the Prohibition era, there were many brutal gangs with colorful names that were roaming the streets of Manhattan. Gangs with names that sound more fitting for terrible boy bands, such as the Daybreak Boys, the Baxter Street Dudes, the Little Doggies, and even a group that willingly called themselves the Pansies. Yet, despite these impossibly unintimidating monikers, some of these groups had been around since the 1840s. The roles of these groups varied. Some gangs were merely just groups of brawlers and street fighters while others were made up of robbers, thieves, and murderers. One of the more dangerous gangs during this time, despite what they decided to name themselves, was the Gopher Gang. The Gophers were considered the Lords of Hell's Kitchen, which was the tough Irish immigrant section of Manhattan. Their domain ran from 7th Avenue to 11th Avenue and from 14th Street to 42nd Street which meant that their territory encompassed approximately 160 city blocks. And it was run by some 500 members of the gang. The Gophers had actually gotten their nickname from their fondness for hiding out in basements and cellars throughout Hell's Kitchen during their escapes following robberies or whatever else the members would do that would get the police to chase them but more often than not, it was robberies. The main target of said robberies was usually the New York City Central Railroad that ran through their territory. There was a lot of turnover in the leadership of the Gopher Gang. Most of the members who would step up to be the gang's leader did not last for more than a few months. Therefore, the gang did not produce any outstanding or notable leaders like Monk Eastman or Paul Kelly. Instead, there was a list of uh, flash-in-the-pan characters with catchy names like Stumpy Malarkey, One Lung Koran, and Goo Goo Knox, as this was indeed the golden age of criminal nicknames. One Lung Koran's claim to fame was said to be a fashion trend he started. While looking for something unique for his girlfriend, he blackjacked a police officer and stole his jacket. His girlfriend quickly stitched it to fit her, which created a new but short-lived fad. Because after several police officers met the same fate, they began patrolling gopher territory in groups of four or five, and the new jacket craze came to an abrupt end. Another gopher of legend was Happy Jack Mulraney, 
who was called Happy Jack because he always appeared to be smiling. This was actually because Mulraney suffered from a partial paralysis of his facial muscles, and despite his chipper appearance, Happy Jack was a total psychopath. His lieutenants would incite him to rage, telling him that certain enemies had made disparaging remarks about his perpetual grin. Legend has it that when a close friend of his, Patty the Priest, asked J Happy Jack why he didn't laugh out the other side of his face, Mulraney responded by shooting him in the throat, which, if you ask me, is a bit of an overreaction. For this shooting, Happy Jack ended up getting sentenced to life in prison. The Gophers were somewhat progressive for a street gang, and even had a woman's auxiliary, known as the Battle Row Ladies Social and Athletic Club, or as they were better known around the area, the Lady Gophers. The leader of this group was known as Battle Annie, and she was considered to be the queen of Hell's Kitchen. Battle Annie earned her rank during the labor union wars by supplying lady warriors for both sides, the factories and the strikers. In fact, there were very few strikes in which she didn't provide female muscle, whose primary purpose was biting and scratching. One of the more sensational episodes involving the Gophers was a gang war shootout that the Hell's Kitchen crew was not even a part of. Warring members of the Five Pointers and the Eastmans, who I profiled in episode five, were participating in one of their larger routine shootouts, when half a dozen Gopher members happened upon the scene and decided to join in. None of them even bothered to find out who was shooting or why. In 1910, Chick Trekker, the leader of one of the splintering factions from the Eastman gang after Monk Eastman got sent to prison, captured the impressionable heart of a dancer that worked at a club in Hell's Kitchen named Ida the Goose. Ida ran off with Tricker, abandoning her old job in Hell's Kitchen. This did not go over well, as the disappearance of Ida the Goose, who had been beloved by many of the Gophers' captains, incensed the Hell's Kitchen gang into action. The Gophers demanded her return under threat of war, but Ida declined to leave her newfound love, which is pretty romantic. But in October of 1910, four gopher gunmen calmly walked in to a cafe in Tricker's territory and ordered beers. In the bar were six Tricker gang members, two bartenders and Ida the Goose. The Tricker gangsters, amazed at the audacity of the four gophers, nervously watched them without saying a word. The gophers casually drank their beers, and when they finally had drained their mugs, they looked at each other and then one said, well, let's have at it. The gophers spun around with guns in each hand and began blasting away. The shooters were able to seriously wound five of the six tricker men, and Ida jumped behind the bar to hide. The group of gophers stopped firing, only because they needed to reload, and that's when Ida the goose yelled at them to stop and surrendered. And then, in a bizarre turn of events, Ida requested a gun from one of the gopher men and shot dead one of the trickers, because apparently she was batshit crazy. The gophers then marched out of the cafe and headed back to Hell's Kitchen with Ida the Goose 
following at a respectable distance. She was glowing with pride over the deadly gunfight that had just been fought in her honor. It was said that Ida the Goose never again strayed from Hell's Kitchen. I would argue that Kid Tricker dodged a bullet by the relationship ending, literally. By 1912, the New York Central Railroad organized a special police force because they were getting pretty tired of being robbed by the gophers. A number of the officers on this police force were actually ex-policemen who had suffered grievously at the hands of the gopher gang. The tables were now turned, and without the protection they had enjoyed from corrupt politicians in the past, the gophers were beaten from one end of Hell's Kitchen to the other by the new authorities. Over the course of three months, almost all of the gophers got wailed on by clubs, blackjacks, and pistols. And this culminated when the leader of the gophers at the time got arrested and sent to Sing Sing, leaving the organization in total disarray. The gang would end up splitting into three factions, and the largest group that would keep the namesake came under control of a man named Owen Victor Madden, a.k.a. Oni Madden. Oni was born in Liverpool, England in 1892 to Irish parents. He was described as slick, slim, and dapper, with the gentle smile of a cherub and the cunning cruelty of the devil himself. Madden had arrived in America when he was 11, and by the time he was 17, he had already been a suspect in two murders, which earned him the nickname Oni the Killer. He stepped up to lead the faction of new gophers when he was only 18, and by the age of 23, the police had him as the main suspect in five different murder cases. You see, he was a crack shot with a revolver and a virtuoso with a slingshot, a blackjack, and a pair of brass knuckles, as well as the traditional weapon of thugs at the time, a lead pipe wrapped in newspaper. However, he was not a very big guy and often preferred to avoid close-range fighting. Instead, he preferred an equalizer, which was his pistol. Despite his savageness, Madden was a victim of the time when it came to fashion. Often being adorned in the standard thug uniform of the era, a turtleneck sweater and cap. And despite his slick and dapper demeanor, he spoke in a dialect of D's, Dem, and Do's. The thing that marked Oni Madden for leadership was his utter contempt for life, neither his own nor anyone else's. There are accounts that say that in order to celebrate himself becoming a leader of the gopher faction, he murdered an Italian man, just a random Italian man. And he got arrested for it, but he was released when several of the witnesses conveniently disappeared. Less than a year later, he murdered a man on a trolley car after they argued over a young lady. On the victim's deathbed, the victim claimed that Madden was his assailant, and police apprehended Oni after a chase across the tenement roofs of Hell's Kitchen. But, again, Madden avoided conviction as the witnesses to the shooting vanished. In Madden's gopher gang, he had some difficulty finding captains that could meet his criteria of utter violent insanity, and his ambitiousness made him a lot of enemies. 
as he would frequently let it be known to all those around him that he aspired to be the king of all gangs. On November 6th of 1914, his enemies made the best of an opportunity that a drunken Madden presented them. At a dance hall, Madden walked in alone, strutted into the middle of the dance floor, where he stood with folded arms and a scowl on his face. The music quickly stopped, and women and men backed off the dance floor and started moving towards the exits. Go on and have your fun, Madden shouted. I won't bump anybody off tonight. I don't want to spoil you's guy's party. This could arguably be considered the most thoughtful thing that Oni Madden ever did. After he promised to not kill anybody that evening, Madden walked up the dance hall's balcony where he kept an eye on the happenings and drank whiskey for several hours. And when a female admirer sought his company, he started to chat with her and let down his guard, only to find himself surrounded by eleven stone-eyed gunmen from the Hudson Dusters gang. Madden rose to his feet and confronted the would-be assassins. Come on, you guys, he hollered. Yous wouldn't shoot nobody. Who did yous ever bump off? The Dusters had to admire Oni's boldness, but still drew their pistols on him, and bullets flew, mostly in Oni's direction. Oni was hit six times, and when the police showed up and questioned him in the hospital as to who shot him, Madden replied, Ain't nothing doing. The boys will get him. It's nobody's business but mine who put these slugs into me. And Oni, if nothing else, was a man of his word. Less than a week after the shooting, it was reported that three of the shooters were dead. While Madden was recovering from his wounds in the hospital, William Moore, better known as Little Patsy Doyle, a member of the old Gophers gang, decided to make a very uninformed power play in Hell's Kitchen. He announced that Madden would not be returning. He attempted to take over leadership of the gang, spurred on by jealousy. You see, his ex-girlfriend had said that she was going to marry Madden, and through these false claims of Madden's debilitation, Patsy began to assemble a small crew of thugs. In the meantime, Madden was discharged from the hospital and immediately got to work dispelling all of the rumors that little Patsy had started about him being in a paralyzed state. A small war ensued because of this. Beatings and stabbings took place on both sides until Madden was able to convince most of the little Patsy loyalists that Patsy was actually a stool pigeon for the police. This served to strip little Patsy of pretty much all his protection, and Madden began to plan how he was going to bump him off. On November 28th of 1914, little Patsy received a phone call from one of his captains, who told him that his old flame wanted to reconcile. Little Patsy fell for this ruse and arrived at the bar where he was told to meet his ex-girlfriend that night. When he entered, he was told that this girl was in the ladies' room, and so he waited. But he didn't have to wait long before he was pumped full of lead by two of Oni's gunmen 
who were sitting discreetly at a table in the bar. A bullet-riddled little patsy managed to stagger out of the bar and then fell dead on the doorstep. Police showed up and arrested the shooters, as well as some of the other occupants of the bar, believed to have been part of the setup. These material witnesses said that they had no knowledge of the setup, and three ended up actually testifying against Madden, who was charged as an accomplice to the murder. Aside from one traffic violation, this would be the first crime of the 57 Madden had been charged with, to which he was actually convicted. Later, though, the witnesses recanted their testimony, but the judge didn't buy it. Madden was sentenced from 10 to 20 years in Sing Sing. When Madden was released from prison in January 1923, after having served less than 10 years of his sentence, the criminal landscape had changed. The days of the rough-and-tumble street gangs were gone. Smarter gangs had come upon the scene, with the advent of a new money-making device called Prohibition. The gopher gang that he had ruled over were now all either in Sing Sing or working for other bootlegging gangs. So Madden would essentially need to start from the bottom rung of the criminal underworld. He reached out to an old friend, Larry Fay, who had formerly been a member of Madden's gophers. Fay had a sharp mind for crime and had moved up to better things than merely being a henchman. However, Faye lacked the physical prowess to be intimidating and would need Madden's muscle to help establish the taxi business that he wanted to set up using the profits he had made running Canadian whiskey across the border during the early days of Prohibition. Faye began to recruit a gang of strong-arm goons who would be led by Madden. This battalion would be used to begin strong-arming the most profitable cab stands along Broadway, and after these were successfully forcefully acquired, Faye tried to get involved in New York's milk trade, with the hopes of turning milk delivery into a criminal racket, which was nothing if not creative. But while Faye was busy trying to forge new paths for dairy-related crime, Oni had begun splitting his time between leading the gang of goons and slightly observing Faye's operations. It was not long before Oni moved on to form another organization of his own. While Faye had used Prohibition as a means to raise money for other ventures, Madden saw it as a good opportunity that shouldn't be passed up. And by 1924, the Madden gang had become heavily involved in bootlegging, establishing a territory in Hell's Kitchen. The amount of money in the bootlegging business made Oni more flush than he had ever been previously. He started to use this money to open and acquire numerous flashy speakeasies and nightclubs around New York City. The most famous of these nightclubs was a joint called the Cotton Club, located in Harlem. The Cotton Club was very unique in that it was a club that employed black performers during a time when all other nightclubs were segregated, not allowing them in at all. 
That's not to say that the club was destroying any racial barriers, though. It was still a whites-only club, as far as patronage went. But people would flood into Harlem from Manhattan to get into the Cotton Club for the chance to see performers like Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, and Louis Armstrong. The popularity of the Cotton Club, and on a lesser scale, the rest of Oni's nightclub empire, which consisted of more than 20 other venues, made Oni a celebrity of the time. He was still viewed as a very dangerous and volatile man, but he threw great parties. In 1931, a 40-year-old Madden decided to get out of the bootlegging business, sensing that the repeal of Prohibition was just around the corner. He decided to pursue a new, somewhat more legitimate line of business and partner up with boxing promoters Broadway Bill Duffy and Big Frenchie Demange. Between them, they controlled the careers of several boxing champions of the time, such as Primo Carneros, an Italian strongman who Madden arranged to have all of his fights fixed so that Carnero would win. And this went all the way up to the heavyweight championship in 1933. But people soon began to grow suspicious about the fights, figuring it probably had to do something with Carnero being managed by a well-known criminal at the time. In order to avoid the spotlight, Madden abandoned his manager position. During his time as a boxing promoter, Oni fell into his old bad habit of killing people. In 1932, he had murdered a man named Vincent Mad Dog Call in response for Mad Dog bilking money from Big Frenchie and Madden. But Madden had already been arrested for a parole violation earlier that same year, which had put him in the crosshairs of the police who were harassing him more and more. Furthermore, the territory that Oni still maintained in Hell's Kitchen was being encroached by the Italian Mafia families that were growing in power. These factors led him to eventually leave New York City altogether in 1935. He left behind all of his various rackets, settling down in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which had become known as a haven for various criminals, thanks to the city's corrupt government and police force. While he was primarily there to retire with all the money he had made from his nightclubs, as well as prohibition, he still became lightly involved in local criminal activities around Hot Springs, specifically illegal gambling. But the rest of his life would be pretty uneventful, as he would live out the rest of his life in Hot Springs from age 43 until his eventual death of heart failure in 1965 at the age of 73. This episode of the Mobcast was brought to you by listeners just like you, who have been pretty late on their payments recently and should probably start sending me the money, or you never know what could happen. As always, you can find the other episodes of Mobcast on the Mobcast subreddit. Thank you for listening. <laughs>